I've only asked you to do what I asked you to do a moment ago once or twice, so I hope you were with me as you did it and tried it. Sets up the message that I want to share this morning out of Acts chapter 17. Paul now on a second missionary journey is finding himself in three different locations sharing the gospel on three different occasions with three different responses. What I want to talk to you about this morning is those opportunities that you and I have to share our story. How Christ has changed us, what he's done in our lives, how well we know the word of God, the impact that it's had on our lives and our ability to share it out of the context of what I want to do this morning. What I would like for you to do when I ask you the questions is to answer out loud. Now, if you answer one of the questions and you can't answer anymore, someone else will, so I want no one to dominate. But I'd love for you to out loud, I've only asked you to do this one or two other times in a long time, so out loud, answer the questions, and then we'll see how well you do. And we actually have prizes for those who get them all. All right, here we go. What kind of fruit did Eve eat in the Garden of Eden that's associated with sin? Apple. No. Pomegranate. It doesn't say. The first service, there must have been a smorgasbord full of answers. It doesn't say what kind it was. It says a fruit of the, true, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How many animals did Noah take in the ark? Are you serious? Somebody in the first service said all of them. I thought, now that is a great answer. <laughs> Took all of them in. Seven of uh, clean animals, seven of every kind of clean animal, and two of every kind of unclean. What was Joseph's younger brother's name? Benjamin. What was Moses' sister's name? Miriam. Who held up Moses' arms as he prayed during one of Israel's battles? Aaron and Joshua was fighting the battle. Who was the other guy? Her. I hope you have those in your life. People, no matter what you go through, uphold you in prayer. That you know in a moment's notice are there for you. When you're going through a crisis or just have an event in your life where you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that those people, whether it's one or two or a dozen, would at that moment pray for you and uphold you together. I have people all over this campus that I know do that on a regular basis. At 845 on Sunday morning, I've got a few elders that join me and pray over me for the service. If you've ever seen me sit right before I'm about to speak, I cannot move. Every once in a while during a song, I do, but I can't breathe. I can't get enough breath. It's an unbelievable moment to stand here before you and be a communicator for the message of God. And I need to know, and, and I'm sure you do as well in those moments of time when you're facing difficult circumstances or wanting to share your faith in context this week, and you know that that one person you've been really wanting to witness to is going to be there, and the setup has already been, you happen to have lunch, and you want to know that somebody's praying for you at that moment. I hope you have Aaron and hers and Mabel's and Susan's people that are upholding you together in prayer. Who was the oldest man in Scripture? Methuselah. How old did he live? What is it? 969 years. Who would want to live that long? David's best friend was Jonathan. What two animals did David kill? What were they? Lion and a bear. Shortest chapter in the Bible. Boy, that narrowed down those responses, didn't it? Psalm 117. Longest chapter? 119. You knew that one. Who wrote most of the New Testament? You know what the common answer is? Paul. You know who the answer, right answer is? Luke. The majority, the bulk. Acts and Luke, the long chapters and all that goes with that, the most in the Scripture. 
What man is mentioned most in the Bible? What is it? Jesus! When all else fails, what did you learn in Sunday school? When all else fails, you don't know the answer, you answer what? Jesus! Isn't there a song? Who, who, who guys are great singers? And who's, one of the contemporary songs is, when all else fails, answer Jesus. What name is mentioned second most? David, good one. What woman is mentioned most? Wow, I'm impressed. Sarah. Who was talked to by his donkey? Balaam. I got a whole sermon on that. If God can use a mule, he certainly can use us. Who was let down over the wall in a basket? Paul. You got that one? Who went to heaven in a whirlwind? Elijah. Very good. That's how I've asked God to let me go. He hasn't gotten back to me yet on how, but I'd love to go that way. Who said it's for me and my house will serve God? Joshua. You knew that one. Who said, here am I, send me? Isaiah. How many wise men visited Jesus? Nine? No, none? All right. Doesn't say. I, you've heard me say it before. We three kings of Orient are. The only thing really biblically correct about that is the we. Somebody went, but it wasn't kings. They weren't three, and they weren't from the Orient. Where's the... <laughs> just, and some of you are going, okay, now what am I supposed to do with my manger scene? I know that. <laughs> Where in the New Testament is the great love chapter? First Corinthians 13. Anybody been to any of my weddings? You've heard it shared in those middle verses. What New Testament book speaks about the second coming in almost every chapter? Revelation is the standard answer. What do you think is the right answer? Thessalonians. And where is the communion passage found? 1 Corinthians 11. Not one single sound when I asked that question in the first service. All right, now, how many got them all right? I got, I got, I got my little banner white here. She's going to come, Meg. And we've got coupons for next week for good for one coffee and free donut. I'll give you three of them if you get more than... No one... No one got one... Got them all right. How many, how many, missed, how many missed at least one? At least one. <laughs> how many missed only one? How many missed only two? Wow. Three? Okay, we got one back there for three. So how well do you know the word? George Barnes said that only 40% of church-going folks, thanks, Meg, read the Bible every week. Now, obviously, they didn't interview you, but 40% of church-going people read the Bible every week. So that means 60% of church-going people don't. Only 45% say they know the Word of God well. You know what that means? 55% don't. And these are church-going people who really don't know and understand the Word of God. Now, they may understand it. They may know some things about it. They may know where to find things, but they really don't feel comfortable knowing the Word of God. When you talk about witnessing, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, sharing your faith, communicating to others what you have found in Jesus, the number one thing that I hear people tell me as to what keeps them from doing that is they know someone's going to ask them a question they can't answer. Let me just give you a hint on that right now. They will, and you won't. There's always going to come a question that you can't answer. I can't answer every question in the Bible. I can't answer every question about life. 
What you don't want that to do is to keep you from sharing what you know you have found in Jesus that literally has changed your life, that has transformed you from the inside out and made the biggest difference in your life of all the things you've done, of all the experiences you've had. You know the best thing that has ever happened in your life is your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's changed you for now and all eternity. And you have the opportunity to share that on a regular basis. One of the things that I have found out now, I I know this morning that what you did is facts. Historical facts or historical figures all the way through the word of God. But my question is, if we don't know the facts, we don't know all those things that are very familiar to us that we probably grew up in Sunday school with, do we know the principles? And do they guide our life? In a world without moral absolutes, it really does say there's nothing that's true. There is no moral absolute. There is no one truth. In a world that says that over and over and over again, those of us who know that's not right need to be able to know that we point to this that is always true, that's the one moral absolute. In a world that says there are many ways to God, get to him any way you can. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's all going to work out in the end. You and I who are followers of Christ need to know that we know the word of God and want to communicate that to them because it's changed our life. Amen? You don't have to fill a blank on that one. You can just respond. There's a lot of people that are absolutely convinced you and I don't know what we're talking about and you and I need to be absolutely convinced that we stand on the word of God and it is true. It's the one absolute in a world filled with diversity where everybody's opinion's okay and from the top down, it doesn't matter who it is, whatever I feel like doing today, whatever feels good at the moment, whatever seems right at the moment, that's what I'm gonna do. Who's gonna judge that? God will. And what you and I need to know is that there is one thing that I can always go back into in a world that's so confused looking for answers that is always gonna be true. Does it guide my life? When it says don't lie, don't cheat, don't gossip, don't covet, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Avoid stupid controversies. Do I do that? When I know that it says, don't lie. Well, then I'm going to use that as a guide for my life. I won't lie. If I know not to gossip and it says, don't gossip, and I know it's the truth and I believe that it's the truth, I won't do that. If I know when it says not covet, don't commit adultery, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. I don't want to do that because that's what it says. And so I don't want to do it. When it says, avoid, I love, I think it's the RSV translation of that one of those New Testament verses. When it says, avoid stupid controversies. I love that. How many times have you been, even with other Christians and certainly other people around the world that are involved in some of the dumbest things trying to solve them when really doesn't matter in this grand scheme of life. And, and Paul said, just avoid the dumb, stupid controversies that sometimes makes people upset. If I know over and over and over again, Paul says in the word of God, make sure beyond anything else you maintain unity in the family of God. I want to do that. I'm not always always in there stirring up the pot. We used to raise animals. That's where before we found out how they keep coming over and over again. And we had like 20 some pups all at the same time. And I was fascinated when I would look into that box and there's these little pups running around when finally all of them would go to sleep. But what? One of them. And what he would want to do is to go stir the rest of them up until you finally got them all settled down. Sometimes we dads love to do that. And boy, do we grandparents love to do that. Right before Ike goes to bed, Isaac, the littlest one, I just can't wait to run him all over the house and then say, go lay down and go to sleep. 
Paul said, avoid the things, that, the times that you just want to always stir something up that really in the grand scheme of life doesn't matter. If I don't know the facts and figures, do I really understand the principles and do I let them guide my life? In Acts 17 this morning, where Paul's going to have three different opportunities in three places to share his faith and defend the faith. And I find myself saying, what would I do if I were in his place? Could I defend what I know is true, what I know is right, if I'm confronted on a regular basis, as many of you are as well, and you know? Acts 17. I'm not going to read every verse, but a good bulk of it. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where they were in a Jewish synagogue, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded, joins Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. That's the Corneliuses that we read about in chapter 10. And quite a few prominent women, but other Jews were jealous. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd, but they couldn't find them, so they dragged Jason out. Said so these men are causing trouble all over the world. They've now come here, and Jason welcomed them to his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the city and the officials were thrown into turmoil. As soon as it was night, verse 10, the believers sent Paul and Silas on their way to Berea. Now, on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. They've always done that. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the God works, the enemy does as well. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word Berea, some went up too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So in verse 16, he gets on to Athens, the third city. Greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Reason in the synagogue, both with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day to those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They say this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the uh, Aragopolis where they said to him, May we know why you, what this new teaching is that you're preaching or presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul stands up and he begins to say to them, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So... You who are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not to be served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man, from one man, he made all the nations that they would inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
And then he declared with them the word of God and what Jesus was. Three different cities, three different responses to the gospel. Thessalonica, anger, Berea, eagerness, Athens, even some arrogance. When you share your story, and hopefully you do, as I said yesterday on phone tree, when you share your story, why you do what you do, why you go to church, where you go to church, the difference Jesus made in your life, you're going to find very similar responses. Not everyone's going to say, that's awesome. Let me have that. Talk to me. Tell me more. Some will. Some will say, tell me more. I want to know the difference that it's made in your life, especially for those who came to Christ later in life, where they knew the dramatic turnaround or change in your life. You'll have more opportunities than many people because they've watched you. Now, all of a sudden, they're watching your life and they're seeing a lot of differences. And they want to know the difference that Jesus has made in your life, or at least what has made the difference, and it gives you the platform to share Jesus. Some are going to reject you. Some are going to say, you keep your Bible at home. Don't talk to me about your God stuff. I don't want to hear it. You do your own thing on the weekend, but do not bring it up at work. Do not bring your Bible to work. Do not talk about Jesus at work. Some are going to be pretty adamant about your response and the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And you know, as I do, because you've already tried that, I hope somewhere along the way, and you've found a number of different responses to the gospel. Some may believe, some may walk away, some may argue, some may question. Some will doubt, but in every single situation, you have the opportunity to share with them what you have found in Jesus that changed your life and could theirs as well. In verse 2, it said he reasoned with them, kind of a question and answer dialogue. Pretty resistant. The, verse, the word persuaded in verse 4 indicates it's like a, kind of like a pulling of teeth, trying to get them to understand, almost like prove it to me. Now, some did respond and believe, but many responded in anger and rage. Our society is not overwhelmingly responsive to Christianity at times, and especially to what we know is true and know is right. But it's not just now, although it seems escalated at some points or the other, and depending on what news program you read, you'll see that there are many people that are really trying to live godly principles and share their faith that are being shut down and shut off. I'm sure at some point you may have heard the story of uh, Norma McCorby. She was otherwise known as Jane Rowe in the original 1973 Roe versus Wade. She later confessed that she lied, that she was convinced to do that. She turned her life over to Christ, was baptized, and now proclaims life. But when interviewed years ago by an ABC reporter, she was almost crucified just by her lifestyle, saying that she was an emotionally troubled woman with no real conversion but a political ploy by the Christian right. The world is seriously hostile to the kingdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many times, if you share your faith, you're going to find that, as Paul did, and the issue is always, show them Jesus every chance you get. In Berea, verse 10, they found some eagerness to the truth. They were open-minded. wasn't blind acceptance. They examined the scriptures very carefully. Verse 11 says that they did it every day. What I love about that and what I want you to underline in your word is that phrase. They carefully examined the scriptures. Whether every day is the issue or not, but they carefully examined the scriptures. They want to know that what I'm hearing is from the word of God. One of the things I want to encourage you to do, if I've not done it on a regular basis, make sure that every Sunday you check out that what I'm doing is in the Word of God. That it's not just blind faith or blind allegiance just because we love this church or love who I am, or at least two of you do. But you really believe that this is the Word of God and you verified that. 
One thing that fascinates me at times is that I have people come to me with a, a radio program or a book or analysis of somebody else's writings as if it's Jesus or the Bible. And I say to them, have you matched that up with the word of God? What I love about the Bereans is they made sure that what they were hearing was aligning with the word of God, was clear and understandable. And every time you hear a truth, be it on the radio or the television or a book you've read, make sure you're comparing it to the word of God. It's the one thing you know for sure is always right. You may not understand every detail of every circumstance, especially in the Old Testament, but you know this is that one thing that is true and everything else in life is compared to that. And you ought to make sure, keep me, check me on it to make sure that what I'm sharing with you is from the word of God. And I did after the first service had one lady come out to me and said, I really don't think it was Sarah who was the most well-known woman in the, old, in, the, in the Bible. I said, check it out. And then I'm sitting here thinking, I hope the person that gave me all this information was right now. <laughs> and of course, you see what happens in verse 13 to 15 when God moves in amazing ways, the enemy is sure to follow because he doesn't like what it is we're doing and sharing the word of God. Athens is a whole other story. A center of culture, religion, and philosophy. The Epicureans taught and believed that happiness and pleasure were the two principal aims of life. They believed that everything happened by chance. The gods were out there somewhere but had no influence on today. And so I'm not really concerned about anything. Their attitude on life, eat, drink, and be merry. Know any of them? A lot of the people that you come in contact with every day assume that God is out there somewhere, maybe at a distance, but he really has no bearing on my life right now, so I'm just going to live life. And at the end, it's all going to work out. The Stoics were opposite of that. All of life was determined by God, free of any emotional involvement. Paul described their culture as foreigners who spent their time doing nothing but listening to the latest ideas. They embraced the latest truth. They followed the latest fad. They embraced the newest philosophy. And, and I want to say this carefully as I possibly can, but I at least want you to understand the concept. When you, as a young person, or you as a mama, dad, send your kids to a secular university or college, they're going to find a very similar thing. That doesn't mean that every Christian university is perfect, not at all. I'm just saying, when you send your children, your young people, or you as moms and dads, or you as young people, go to non-Christian or secular universities and college, you're going to find yourself running into people who are like this, who embrace the latest fad, the latest philosophy, the latest truth, and they all, no matter what's going today, will change tomorrow. And the most important thing you can ever do is to know where you stand. And know, number one, that you stand on the word of God and you get that and you can share that and you know why. Not just because your mom or dad said or because you came to a church that was evangelical and preached the gospel from the word of God, but that you know what you believe and you know why you believe it. Because you'll be questioned about it constantly. Those of you who are in, uh, in, in I'm sure in a workplace, almost every week at some point or the other going to have people question who you are and what you do and what you believe. Paul stands up and talks to them about the truth. And what I love about this in verse 22, and I want you to look carefully at it, is that he starts with a compliment. He's going to confront them with the truth, but sometimes when we hear the word confront, it's almost intimidating, like getting in somebody's face and really confronting them with the truth and, and, and putting them off so that they've already put up walls and they don't want to hear what we have to say. And I, I've seen Christians do that at times when it comes to sharing what they know in the word of God. And they put people off. 
And whether you ever see them push that magic button with an invisible shield or not doesn't really matter. But I'm telling you, when you get in their face and try to convince them that you're right and all that you know is true and all of that, all they've done is shut you off. And what I love about what Paul does is that he starts with a compliment. I see that you're very religious people. Let me help you understand the one thing that you're missing, the greatest thing that you'll ever find. And then he tells them the story of Jesus. I love that approach because I've seen the other approach. I, I've seen, I, I've been at times in Christian settings where, where someone, I, I, we had a guy in one of my other churches who would go to a gathering, we'd have our young people in, and he would stand up on the table. All right, folks, we're Christians here, and we're going to pray before the meal. Okay, why do you do that? Let them see your life. Now, I hope you do pray before a meal. I had uh, a friend of mine here from the church. We were praying one time in the restaurant over in the mall, and we had two ladies come over to us and said, I've never seen men pray before a meal in public. I was fascinated by that statement. So often, sometimes, we who are believers in Christ, who are absolutely convinced that we're right, and we are, turn people off by our approach. I love Paul's way of doing it and trying to get them to understand and almost enticing them in so that they're going to listen. Verse 24, every person asks one of those three questions. I remember being asked in the 60s, where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? Having your nose as science attempts to answer the first philosophy, the second Christianity has the answer to them all. What's interesting about the gospel with all of its powerful theology and reasoning comes down to some simple truths. Like a baby in a manger, a man on a cross in an empty tomb. And in verse 22 and 25, or through 25, Paul gives them the truth. Now, when he gets to the resurrection, they turn him off. He leaves, goes to Corinth in chapter 18. One of the reasons that I say to you about reading the whole word of God and making sure that we understand it all is that you'll get to 2 Corinthians and Paul said, Man, when I was in Asia, I thought I was going to get killed. Man, we were pressed every day. It was so hard on us. We just didn't know we were going to ever make it or get out alive. When you read Acts 17, then that makes sense. And the thing that I found myself asking is, why did he keep going back? City after city, place after place, why did he keep going back? A couple of simple reasons. One is that he knew he had the truth. And he knew the power of the resurrection could change a life for all of eternity. And his love was so deep For those who were lost, he would pay any price to see them found. And so guess what I ask myself? Do I love my non-Christian friends that much? That I'll do anything to share the love of Jesus with them because I know it can change their life for all eternity. In Romans 10, he said, my heart's desire is that they be saved. I understand to the Jew it was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, they wanted something else. But for those who believe, Christ has the power to share, change life. No greater love has this any man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, Jesus said. And Paul, at the very core of his being, knew that Jesus was the answer. I have a phrase in your sermon notes this morning, that repeated phrase, he reasoned from them 
with them from scriptures. And what captured me about that is not that he did it because he knew he would, but that he could do it. He was capable of it. He was a man of the word. He knew his way around the book. He studied scripture. It was a high priority to him. And he was absolutely convinced that in his hands that you and I have now, the, the luxury and the beauty of is a tool that can change a life. It can change a life. Those of us who are mechanically inclined, you know as well as I do that if you're going to fix anything, you've got to what? You've got to have the right tool. That's why I keep going back, and my wife says, okay, you've got four toolboxes. Seriously? I mean, it was on sale. I just had to have that new tool. And every time a cobalt tool comes out, even though I'm not a Jimmy Johnson fan, every time a cobalt tool, cobalt tool I got, that one will work better. Why didn't they do that to begin with? And I'll get another tool, and my wife's going, Seriously? You and I, as men of God, as women of God, have the absolute greatest tool in life in our hands. And it can change a life forever. And Paul knew that. He not only knew the scriptures, but he lived them. And you put a passion for the word of God and a love for people and a belief that Christ is the answer and a knowledge of the word of God, and you got the power to turn the world upside down. Which is one version of Acts 17.6. Those who, came, who turned the world upside down now are showing up here. I love that phrase. You put passion and love for people and a belief that Christ is the answer and a knowledge of the word of God, and you've got the power to turn the world upside down. Paul says to Timothy, study the word inside and out. Avoid empty chatter and foolish speculation. James said, don't get blown away by every wind of doctrine. Make sure you're centered and you know what that is. In a day with so many options and so much confusion out there about what's really true, I find Christians sometimes more concerned about what other things than what God thinks. And to make sure that it's not just enough to know knowledge of facts and figures and Old Testament characters, but know the principles and live them out to a world who really, even though they'll never tell you, is desperately dying for what works. You've heard me say that in parenting seminars before. Your kids will never come up to you and say, I really need discipline. Please discipline me. I am out of control. Would you please discipline me? How many kids will tell you that? But I'm telling you, way to go. But I'm telling you, they'll never tell you that they're lost and they have no idea where to go. But they are. And you and I have the answer. You and I have the answer. And we have the opportunity at some point or the other in your journey, whether it be somebody like the Bereans or the Thessalonians or the Athenians, whatever, whoever it may be, to share the truth and to give them the answer. These next five weeks... When I, when I looked at the calendar and last week when the first service voted to let me finish last Sunday so that I could do this when I thought, God, you knew that ahead of time. When I looked at the calendar and realized that in these next five weeks, you will have such an opportunity to share. It's almost like God said, here, I set the table for you. Now, now feed them. People are going to ask you, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Well, on Wednesday night, I'm going to church. I'm going to just listen and praise God. I'm going to gather my family around. We're going to just recount the blessings of God over this last year. <laughs> you know, I, I can't wait for this weekend. It's not all about football and turkey and all those gatherings. But, man, it just, it's an opportunity to stop. You're going to hear that next Sunday morning. Just an opportunity to stop and say, wow, man, God has been so good to us this year. We went through some really deep waters. Lost a baby. Lost a dad. Lost a mom. Lost a friend. But in the middle of all of that, I saw God do some things that I wouldn't have imagined, and I don't ever wouldn't know what I would do without God. Christmas is coming. My goodness, you can't have a better smorgasbord table set than that. 
about what you celebrate and why you celebrate. And not just with a pen that said, Jesus is the reason for the season, but an opportunity just to say, uh, I, I, I love this time of year. I love the lights and the songs and singing and all that stuff, but I love the opportunity that I celebrate the greatest gift that humanity has ever known in the coming of the Son of God. Will they ask you a question you can't answer? Probably. Will they always receive it? Not always. But those who do, their life could be changed forever. God help us to take advantage of it. Help me to take advantage of it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the model of Paul who knew that in some cases it was going to cost him his life. But he shared. And so, Lord, in these weeks that are upcoming in the calendar events, help us to be less worried about what we do on Black Friday and the black hole in the soul of so many people who have no idea where to turn. And as the table gets set, And the opportunity is there. Please, Father, give us the courage to take advantage of it and share with them what's changed our lives. I thank you for your word. I thank you for a great example like this and illustrations that remind us that not everyone will receive, but for those who do, it has the power to change a life. So help us to utilize your word well and to be people of the book. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I love how amazing you are as a congregation. You respond so well. So thank you for helping me out this morning. There are a number of people that.